morning is Mark 3, verses 20 through 35. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he cast out the demons. And he called to them and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods, unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man. And whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. This is the word of the Lord. Well, you may have a seat, family. It's good to see you. As we continue in the Gospel of Mark this morning, we have the great privilege and pleasure of having a guest preacher for us this morning. And a few of you know the Lensman family. Uh, Matt Lensman is one of the elders at Redemption Story Church. Uh, so he has been ser- uh, serving there faithfully as an elder for almost five years. He's a dear brother. Uh, he and Heather and, and their girls are here. And so, so good to see y'all. Uh, it's a pleasure that we are reminded, even in this passage, of the family of God and that even uh, if we're not at the same local church, we're all a part of the Big C Church. Uh, So uh, what I would like to do is uh, pray for Matt as he opens up God's Word, pray for Redemption Story Church, uh, and and just ask that God would be uh, present with us this morning as uh, Matt preaches and the Spirit does what he, he does every Sunday. So thank you, brother, for being here. Father, we are so thankful uh, for uh, faithful uh, proclaimers of your word and ministers of your word like uh, our brother Matt. And so, so grateful for his presence here, his willingness to, uh, to be here to bless City Church with the preaching of your word. I pray that you would uh, use his words powerfully. 
I pray that you would give him resolve and uh, understanding uh, as we look at this uh, story in the gospel of Mark. May we be encouraged all the more that you have adopted us into a family where you are our good father. Uh, We pray for Redemption Story Church this morning. Grateful for brothers and sisters there who even at this time are proclaiming your words, singing your praises, and glorifying your name. Pray that you would continue to bless Redemption Story Church and knit them together as uh, faithful saints in that corner of Fort Worth and that part of your kingdom, uh, the kingdom expressed in local churches all over our city, but we're all brothers and sisters uh, to Christ and your children, and we are thankful that that is what you have placed upon us, that that is the name that you've given us as Christians. Uh, We we pray that uh, we would leave this place with hearts stirred for Christ, great affection for you, and and would you do the work of changing us and bringing repentance where it's necessary and encouragement where it's necessary. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Jeff, and good morning, City Church. It is a blessing for me and my family to be worshiping with you this morning. Um, We have a great affection for you and for your pastors, and we marvel at God's sovereignty and even having us here uh, this morning. So a little background on us. For 10 years, our family actually lived just a couple of blocks away off of Tremont Avenue. And personally, I've had the privilege of eldering with Jeff at Redemption Story Church before he, Molly, Jack, and Owen came to join you here. And in recent years, I've also been blessed to get to know Chris, both through ministry and in school. And I can tell you that those two men are men who I admire and aspire to be more like. And so I'm grateful for the opportunity to be here um, with you this morning. Uh, I also bring you greetings on behalf of Redemption Story Church. We are grateful to God for our partnership in the gospel and for all of the work that the Lord is doing. And we pray we'll continue to do through our churches in order to bring kingdom light Um, to Fort Worth. So again, it's a privilege for me personally, um, both as just an individual on behalf of my family and on behalf of uh, my visiting church that uh, I would be here with you this morning. So before we dive into our passage, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, we come to you this morning and acknowledge that you are holy, good, righteous, and just. Lord, we acknowledge that sin against you is serious and that we are sinners who are in desperate need of a Savior. Lord, we thank you this morning for the clarity with which the scriptures show these things to be true. And so we pray that as we open your scriptures this morning, you would reveal more about yourself to us, that who it is that Jesus is would be made clear to us, and that we would respond in repentance and in faith and by walking in obedience. Lord, help us by your Spirit to see who Jesus is and to see who we are in him. Empower us by your Spirit to walk in obedience, to obey your word, and to encourage our brothers and sisters in Christ-likeness. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. So our passage this morning is a classic Mark sandwich. This is a technique that he's going to use throughout, excuse me, his gospel, and we'll see it over and over again. Here's how the sandwich thing works. You guys have had sandwiches before, I presume, so you don't need a big explanation, but Mark will start with one story, which is the first slice of bread, 
He'll then move to another that is a seemingly unrelated story, which is the, the meat or depending on your preferences, the vegetables in the middle of the sandwich. And then he finally comes back to the first story in order to complete the sandwich and thus the story, the second piece of bread. So this structure or this technique is intended to draw our attention to what it is that is in the meaty middle of the sandwich. But not just that, it's also trying to draw our attention to the reality and the truth that what's there is actually connected to the stuff that's on either side in order to make a whole. It's not merely a diversion from the bread on the outside, but a part of a whole. That's especially helpful for us to keep in mind in a passage like this one where the connection between the stuff in the middle and the stuff on the outside isn't so clear or obvious on its face. That means that the key to making sense of a passage like this one is for us to keep this question in the back of our minds. How do these things fit together in order to make a sandwich that makes sense? Mark isn't going to the refrigerator grabbing a bunch of random meats and condiments, and then haphazardly slapping them together. We are not making jelly, roast beef, and feta cheese sandwiches here. We're making something that makes sense together. So in this case, what we have is a scribe sandwich on family bread. Mark begins with a single note about Jesus's family in verse 21. Then he moves on to an episode involving the scribes in verses 22 through 30. And then he circles back around to Jesus's family in verses 31 through 35 in order to complete the sandwich. Now in this passage, we're gonna see two responses to Jesus. So the response of his family and the response of the scribes. And then we're also going to see two responses of Jesus to the scribes and to his family. And at the bottom of this passage, and as you guys have been studying kind of the first half of Mark in general is this question, who is Jesus? Jesus' response to the scribes does, we would acknowledge, include one of the most haunting statements in Scripture. So I would be remiss if I did not discuss at the outset that this reality is true. In verse 29, Jesus says that whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Throughout history, how many people have been tortured by this question? Have I committed the unforgivable sin? What could be more terrifying than this? To believe that you are beyond forgiveness and are destined for eternal misery with no way to escape. Friend, if this question has ever troubled your soul, if it troubles your soul this morning, then my hope and my prayer is that you would find sweet refuge and comfort in the person of Jesus. So we should acknowledge at the outset that in this passage, verse 29 is where our attention very often naturally goes. If you read any commentaries on this passage, they're gonna focus overwhelmingly on this single verse, seeking to answer common questions that even you might have, like, is there really an unforgivable sin? If there is, what is it? And how do you commit it? Is it something that Christians can commit? And we're going to touch on these issues this morning because, of, as we've already stated, they're not merely academic questions. They're ones that have troubled people throughout history. But I will tell you up front that they won't be our primary focus. At the end of the day, what I really hope to help us see together is that as shocking and spine-tingling in a negative sense as this notion of an unforgivable sin may be, 
that what Jesus has to say about what can be forgiven and who belongs to his family should be for us just as shocking and spine-tingling in a positive sense and compel us to worship. So we're going to walk through the text in a straightforward manner, episode by episode. So first, the family's response to Jesus, slice of bread number one. Second, the scribe's response to Jesus, followed by third, Jesus's response to the scribes, so the middle part of the sandwich. Fourth, before circling back to Jesus's response to the family, slice number two. So, Number one, family's response to Jesus. We'll pick up the text in verse 20. Then he went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him for they were saying he is out of his mind. Now Jesus has been busy from the time that he comes onto the scene at his baptism in Mark chapter one, verse nine. Here's a quick rundown of the things that he's been doing and where he has been. He's tempted by Satan in the wilderness. He starts proclaiming the gospel in Galilee. He calls his first disciples along the Sea of Galilee. Then in Capernaum, he starts teaching and heals a demon-possessed man. After this, Mark tells us in chapter 1, verse 28, that at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. Jesus goes on to heal more people in the city, In fact, as he's outside of Simon and Andrew's house, healing those who are sick and possessed by demons, Mark tells us that the whole city gathered together at the door. The crowds are overwhelming, and Jesus has to get up super early the next morning just to get to a desolate place to pray before he leaves town. Then, in verse 39 of chapter 1, he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. Jesus heals a leper. News spreads like wildfire so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, as verse 45 of chapter 1 says, people were coming to him from every quarter. Jesus then returns to Capernaum, chapter 2, verse 1, and it's more of the same. In fact, there's not even room at the door of the house that he's performing healings in, so four guys make an opening in a roof and lower their paralytic friend down so that he can get healed. Jesus goes out again beside the sea where he calls Levi, But Mark is sure to tell us about how all the crowd was coming to him, and there were many who followed him, chapter 2, verses 13 and 15. All along the way, the Pharisees challenge Jesus and eventually get to the point at the beginning of Mark, chapter 3, where they conspire with the Herodians in order to destroy Jesus. Jesus then withdraws with his disciples to the sea, only to be followed by a great crowd, Mark tells us, from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. Jesus tells his disciples to get a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. After all of this, Jesus makes it up to the mountain to appoint his disciples. And then, verse 20 tells us he went back home. That is to Capernaum, which is the home base for his ministry in Galilee. He's not escaping the crowds there either because Mark tells us the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. Maybe Jesus' family has been with him for some of this, or maybe they've just been getting news snippets from others who were there. Either way, I want you to imagine for a moment what the conversations might have been like among Jesus' family as they consider all of the things that he has been up to throughout Galilee. The carpenter's son is a regional celebrity. He's unable to escape massive crowds which follow him everywhere that he goes. 
Jesus is out there teaching in synagogues. He's calling out religious leaders. He's healing the sick. He's casting out demons. What does his family think of all of this? Well, to be blunt, they think he's gone nuts. So much so that they have planned an intervention. With all of the controversy that he's stirring up and all of the crowds that are pressing in upon him, Jesus, in their view, has become a danger to himself and to others, maybe even to his family themselves. And so they plan to capture him and send him away for a while, and maybe things will iron out and calm down a little bit. Now, we're not going to linger long here because most of the action with Jesus' family is going to come at the back half of the sandwich. But one observation that we ought to make here is that verses like this point us to the reliability of the gospel accounts, do they not? There are some people who would have us believe that the accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are mere fantasy or legend, that they are collections of made-up stories about a made-up Savior. But ask yourself this question. If the gospel writers were really going to conspire in order to create some superhero character to do the things that Jesus allegedly did and win the salvation that Jesus allegedly won, someone their readers could pin their entire eternal hopes on, do you really think that they would tell us at some point that, well, you know, the guy's family kind of thought he was a little crazy? Would they tell us, as John tells us later, that not even his brothers believed in him? If Jesus' own family can think he's mad, should we be surprised when the world thinks that those who believe in him have themselves gone crazy? Of course not. Consider Paul. He's before King Agrippa, and he's interrupted by Festus as he makes his defense. And Festus says, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. Brother or sister, as we follow Jesus, know that we will inevitably face people, perhaps even relatives, who think that we're strange, crazy, or maybe worse, evil. When this occurs, we should recall that Jesus himself faced people who misunderstood who he was and what he was about, and yet he still loved them, just as we must do the same. So that's the family's response. They think he's crazy. The scribe's response to Jesus is even worse. Verse 22 And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons, he cast out the demons. The scribes' accusation is as vicious as it sounds. You will recall that at the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry, Mark tells us that he was anointed and endowed for his ministry by the power of the Holy Spirit, not by the power of Satan. These scribes' attitude toward Jesus' work is not that it's mere madness, it's certainly not that it's the Holy Spirit, but rather it's Satan himself. The very one that Mark had told us in chapter 1, Jesus resisted in the wilderness. Now notice for a moment that it is not that the scribes deny that Jesus has done amazing things. They can't do that. The evidence of the miracles, of the healings, of the casting out of demons is clear. Everyone has seen it. They don't say that Jesus didn't actually perform the miracles, heal the sick, or cast out the demons. They can't argue that these were the acts of some gifted stage performer. These are things that really happened. And even the scribes must agree with that. So, what is their option? They're left to attack how 
he's doing these things. Not that he's doing them. And their charge is essentially this. Jesus, you are in cahoots with the devil. We see that you have power to heal the sick and to cast out demons, but we ask, by what power do you do these things? We believe, as the religious scribes and leaders sent down from Jerusalem in order to investigate these matters on behalf of the religious authorities, that it's the power of Satan. This wasn't some slip of the tongue either. In verse 22, we read that these were the things that they were saying, that he was possessed. And in verse 30, Mark tells us that they were saying he has an unclean spirit. This is a continuous action. It's not something they said once. It's something they were saying consistently. This, it seems, Mark is trying to tell us, is their settled view about Jesus. If you or I or someone there was to ask the scribes, if we were to go to them and say, scribes, you are the religious authorities. We look to you to interpret what it is that is going on. We look to you to interpret matters of the scriptures. We would ask you, on what account or what do you account the amazing acts that this Jesus is doing to? And what do they say? That's the devil's work. Do you feel the weight of that? Do you feel the severity of what they are saying? They have seen the supremely good work of the supremely good Son of God, and they have concluded, no, that's the work of the devil himself. Their hardened hearts have been set firmly against him. And so how does Jesus respond? Let's read in verse 23. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, but whatever blasphemies they utter, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. Jesus responds with a couple of parables. The first one answers their lie with logic, and the second one proclaims his lordship. And then finally, he warns them about the spiritual danger that they're in. So we're going to take those one by one. He answers their lie with logic. That's the first parable. He makes a statement about his lordship, the second parable, and then he gives them a warning. First, the logic. Jesus' first response to the scribe's conclusion that he is possessed by Satan is more or less this. You guys aren't making any sense. Satan's evil, but he isn't stupid. Why in the world would he give me the power to cast out his own minions? Think about it. If Jesus were truly an agent of the devil, that means that Satan is working against himself, undermining his own purposes. No one intentionally does that. In all of Galilee, we have seen Jesus healing the sick, casting out demons, performing miracles. 
The sick are made well, the spiritual captives are set free. At every turn, what seems to be happening is the defeat of Satan, not the advancement of Satan. And so to suggest that Jesus is doing this by the power of the devil is patently absurd. Satan's entire scheme is to subvert Jesus' work in ministry, not to promote it. I mean, think about the temptation in the wilderness. Is that not exactly what Satan was trying to do in Jesus' ministry before it ever began? Do these works that Jesus is performing look like the advancement of the kingdom of darkness? As New Testament scholar David Garland has noted, Satan extends his kingdom by sowing chaos and by enslaving humans, not by setting them free. And yet we can imagine the scribes objecting perhaps even to this, arguing that, well, you know, Satan, he's a deceiver, so maybe he's playing some game of 4D chess, and he's making us think that he's being defeated when he's actually achieving his purposes. To this, John Calvin points to the complete effectiveness of Jesus' work. Here's what he says. That Christ cast out devils in such a manner as to restore to God the men in whom they dwelt sound and whole. Christ attacked Satan in open combat, threw him down, and left him with nothing remaining. He did not lay him low in one respect that he might give him greater stability in another, but he stripped him completely of all of his armor. Jesus responds to them and says, you guys don't make any sense. If this is Satan's work, then he is attacking himself and his kingdom is sure to fall. Next, Jesus tacks on a mini parable about his lordship. Verse 27, no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. So think, for illustration purposes, of a burglar who enters a home. To his shock, it turns out that the guy who owns the home is actually sitting there. Not only that, it turns out that the owner, by his estimation, is six foot nine, 250 pounds, a mound of muscle. Those are LeBron James's physical characteristics. The 250, most people think, is a little shaded on the light side. That's neither here nor there. Picture LeBron. You walk into his house, you're trying to burgle his house, and you know that he is stronger than you, he is faster than you, he can beat you to a pulp. If you're going to complete the heist, what do you have to do? You're either going to abandon ship or you need to bind this strong man. You need to find some way in order to neutralize him and put him in the corner so that you can do what you need to do and get out of there. You're gonna have to subdue him. You're gonna have to render him ineffective. In this parable, Jesus is envisioning and picturing Satan as the strong man. He is the one who is strong, but one that is stronger than Satan has come. What Jesus is alluding to here is his own ministry. He's been doing amazing things. And what he's saying is that far from being the acts of Satan, they are in fact the work of Jesus in order to bind Satan so that Jesus may plunder his house fully and finally and forever. The scribes have seen this, but they reject it. Turns out they are wrong. Jesus' acts are part of his rescue mission in order to liberate God's people from Satan's grasp. That's why he's casting out demons. That's why he's healing the sick. That's why he's performing miracles. This work of pushing back the kingdom of darkness continues even today, every time, 
a person is saved by the power of the gospel. Why else would Paul tell us in Colossians that when we are saved, we are delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of God's beloved son? After these parables, Jesus concludes his response to the scribes and their accusations with a dire warning. He says this in verse 28. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. Okay, it's time to grapple with this concept of an unforgivable sin. So question number one, is there one? The first question from our passage seems to be answered with a pretty clear yes. Jesus says it is possible for one to be, quote, guilty of an eternal sin, one that will never be forgiven, either in this age or in the eternity to come. I would encourage you, if you've got time this afternoon, to read the parallel passage in Matthew chapter 12. There are a couple of things that are not stated as clearly here in Mark that are there. And it seems clear that there is an unforgivable sin. We should point out that the forgiveness that Jesus is talking about here is God's forgiveness. The news that we read in verse 28, that man can be forgiven of all sins, is the best news that there is for sinners. Can we not agree? Which means that the worst news for any sinner is that there is such a sin as God will never forgive. We should wrestle with the fact that God is not neutral or indifferent to sin, and it seems especially not this one. He does not take it lightly. So if there is an unforgivable sin, we ask, what is it? There are many theories out there, but verse 29 seems to tell us pretty plainly that whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness. But what does this blasphemy against the Holy Spirit even mean? Verse 30, which we saw earlier, harkens back to what is said in verse 22, gives us a clue. It's in response to what these scribes were saying that Jesus issues this warning. And what were they saying? In verse 30, that he has an unclean spirit. In verse 22, that he is possessed by Beelzebul. And by the prince of demons, he cast out the demons. Again, this isn't something they said once or twice, or that they thought in the dark places of their hearts. These were things that they were saying continually. Now, Jesus does not say that these scribes have committed the unforgivable sin. Maybe they have, maybe they haven't. But when Jesus hears them attribute his power over the demons to Satan, instead of to the Holy Spirit, he says, whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness. This blasphemy against the Spirit isn't the occasional bad thought or even an outburst of anger against God. What Jesus is responding to is the persistent, deliberate rejection of the Lord's work that attributes the act of the Spirit of God to Satan himself. Now, the reason that this sin is unforgivable is not because God is unwilling to forgive. It is because the person in question has so fully and so finally hardened their heart against God's grace, they have so completely set themselves against God that they will never seek forgiveness and are not bothered by it at all. 
Hebrews chapter 12, verse 17 warns professing Christians to not be like Esau who found no place for repentance. We are not told that Esau asked for forgiveness and was denied. The scriptures testify completely to the opposite, that he who asks for forgiveness will be forgiven. Rather, Esau found no place for repentance. His heart had grown so calloused that he could no longer genuinely seek it and thus satisfy the only condition that there is to be forgiven. We might also say from this passage that blasphemy of the Spirit does not arise from mere ignorance. Jesus is responding to the accusations of religious experts who knew the Scriptures backwards and forwards. When people know the Scriptures well, and yet not only fail to recognize Jesus, but also openly reject Him and attribute His work to Satan, they are on the brink. You and I as Christians should not fear a specific sinful act or specific sinful thought, but rather a hardness of heart that would see Jesus for who he is and walk away, ultimately becoming so hardened as to become incapable of even seeking forgiveness. Think for a moment even about Peter's denial. Does the Lord not freely restore him after he denies him three times? Jesus approaches him and says, you were forgiven, go. Grace and forgiveness is there if we would only repent. What Jesus has in mind here is the one who has hardened themselves so fully, so completely, that the thought of repenting doesn't even cross their minds. Those who worry then about whether they have committed this sin are typically the ones who should worry the least. R.C. Sproul says it this way, Worrying about whether one has committed the unforgivable sin is one of the clearest evidences that the troubled person has not committed this sin. For those who commit it are so hardened in their hearts that they do not care that they commit it. Now, before we move on, perhaps you're thinking to yourself, so you're telling me that you can blaspheme against the Father and be forgiven, and you can blaspheme against the Son and be forgiven, but you can't blaspheme against the Holy Spirit. And be forgiven. What's up with that? Now, it probably in my mind has to do with the Holy Spirit's unique role in our salvation. The Father, before the beginning of time, planned redemption to occur. Jesus, in his life, his death, and resurrection, accomplished that redemption. The Father plans it, Jesus accomplishes it. But it is the special role of the Holy Spirit to apply that redemption to us. The Spirit is the one who opens our eyes to the truth of the gospel. The Spirit is the one who brings us to the place of repentance. And the Spirit is the one who makes us beneficiaries of all that the Father has planned and all that the Son has accomplished. And so what's in view here is that if someone has received the clear revelation of who Jesus is, of what Jesus has done, and yet still concludes that despite all evidence to the contrary, that Jesus is actually in league with the devil, then their soul is in great peril. This episode with the scribes, like many others in Mark's gospel, some of which you guys have already covered and some that are yet to come, impresses on us that some of the greatest sins committed by men are committed by the most religious of men. It is Jesus and not religion that saves. Now, as Jesus is responding to the scribes, we get to the fourth episode. He learns that his mother and his brothers are outside seeking him. 
Now we can assume based on what we learned back in verse 21 that the reason they're seeking him is in order to seize him. Their intervention plan is in motion. Mark tells us that they, that is Jesus' mother and brothers, sent for him and that the crowd lets Jesus know that they are standing outside seeking him. I want you to think for a moment, if you needed to talk to your child and they were in the middle of a massive crowd so that you could not bust through to get to them, would you not do what Jesus' mother and his brothers do right here? From an earthly perspective, what they do is perfectly reasonable, is it not? Hey, tell Jesus we're here and we need to talk to him. And the crowd naturally sends the message right along. This is Jesus' family, after all. The crowds can wait. His family takes precedence, and they need to talk to him right now. Jesus could have just said to the crowd that he was talking to, hey, you guys sit tight for a second. My mom's outside. I need to go talk to her for a bit. I'll be right back. But he doesn't. And we ask ourselves, why not? Well, it's not because he doesn't love his mom and his brothers. We know that he loves his family. For one, we know that the Old Testament and Jewish tradition emphasizes the centrality of the family, including the command in the Old Testament and the Ten Commandments to honor thy father and mother. And we know that Jesus is without sin, so we know that he honors his father and mother. For another, we know that even when he's on the cross about to breathe his last breath, Jesus peers down, sees his mother, and then tells his disciple John, his beloved disciple John, to make sure that she is cared for. This is a man who loves his family, and yet he does not say, hey, sit tight, I'll be right back. What Jesus doesn't also say is that his earthly family doesn't matter. He's not disowning his mother or his brothers, but he's making a point here that there is a family bond that is stronger and deeper than the bond of his earthly family. And he illustrates this by asking a question, who are my mother and my brothers? And then he delivers a shocking answer. He looks out to this crowd of at least earthly strangers and says, here are my mother and my brothers. Now, what is it that makes these people, these strangers in a crowd, Jesus's family? It's not that they are third cousins eight times removed. No, he says, whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. Obedience to God, not physical relationship, is the mark of membership in Jesus's family. And we're going to see this illustrated in our text next week on the parable of the sower. It's the one who does God's will. It's the one who bears fruit, who is truly his. The obedience and the fruit aren't how they become family, but rather how they are shown to be family. Two times, once in verse 31 and once in verse 32, Mark tells us that these closest of relatives of Jesus, his mother and his brothers, those who we would most likely assume to be on the inside of Jesus' circle of people are instead said to be standing on the outside. We are left to wonder at what point did it all click for Mary? When was Jesus no longer her beloved miracle boy, but her Lord and her Savior and her King? Same for his brothers. When did they see Jesus for who he really was? See, in order to be part of Jesus' spiritual family, it was going to have to be more than, I'm his mom, or we shared a bedroom when we were little. 
or I've known him since he was a baby, or I grew up in church, or I'm in church every Sunday, or I belong to this particular church or that particular denomination, or I know the entirety of the Westminster Confession of Faith or the 1689 London Baptist Confession. Proximity to Jesus doesn't save. Union with Christ is not something that is inherited. It's not caught. It's not based on who we are, who our parents or our grandparents are, or where we come from. Instead, Christ takes as his closest family members anyone who would trust in him and show that trust by keeping his commandments. To those, he shows the same undying concern and affection that he shows to his blood relatives, and we would say even greater. By implication, those who are his family members by faith would be closer to Jesus than any family members by blood who do not trust in his name. And so there we have Jesus' response to this question of his family coming to seize him. And as we conclude and wrap up our time, it's time for us to put our sandwich together. How do these episodes relate to one another? What makes them make sense together? The stuff with the family and the stuff with the scribes seem a bit disjointed. What's the connective tissue between the two? Ultimately, I think it is what they have to teach us about who Jesus is and who we are in Jesus. So let's take both of those. Who is Jesus? Our passage gives us a couple of options. We could go with Jesus' family and say he's crazy, or we can go with the scribes and say he's possessed by Satan. I would submit that Mark doesn't want us to choose either of those, and I hope that we aren't drawn to that based on what's here. For one, we haven't seen any evidence to support the family's conclusion. There is nothing that suggests that Jesus is out of his right mind. These things are actually happening. And we've already seen how Jesus took the scribes' accusation head on. He refuted them with parables about how they weren't making any sense. He alluded to his own power over Satan and hinted at the true source of his power, the Holy Spirit of God. Indeed, as I mentioned earlier, Matthew's gospel says plainly what Marx does not. In the midst of this, where Jesus is being accused of casting out demons by the prince of demons, he says in Matthew chapter 12, verse 28, but if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Here we have our third option. Maybe his family is wrong. Maybe his scribes are wrong. Maybe they're both wrong. Maybe it is that he's actually doing all of this by the Spirit of God. Maybe we should take Jesus at his word, that if he's doing these things by the Spirit of God, then it means that the kingdom of God has come. It was the Spirit, after all, who descended on Jesus like a dove in Mark chapter 1, verse 10, as the Father declared from heaven, you are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. It was the Spirit, after all, in Mark chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, who drives Jesus out to the wilderness and then sustains him during his temptation by the devil. Could it not also be that this same Spirit is the one by whom he heals and delivers? And if all of this means together that the kingdom of God has come, then what are we to do? Well, Mark tells us plainly in chapter 1, verse 14, exactly what Jesus says as he embarks on his ministry. The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. 
Jesus is neither mad nor possessed. He claims that he is the one ushering in the kingdom of God, the promised Savior, Messiah. So if that's true, then who are we in Jesus? And this, I think, is where the connection between how Jesus responds to the scribes and how he responds to his family come together. Who are we in Jesus? We are forgiven. The kingdom of God is at hand, Jesus says. Repent and believe in the gospel. And we may add, receive forgiveness. Repent, believe, be forgiven. Do you remember what Jesus said before he expounded on the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? Look back at verse 28. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. What glorious news this is for sinners. Repent, believe, and receive God's grace that is greater than all of our sin. As the hymn says, marvelous, infinite, matchless grace, freely bestowed on all who believe, all who are longing to see his face, will you this moment his grace receive? As much as we concern ourselves that there is a sin that won't be forgiven, let us marvel all the more that there is any sin that will be. We sinners don't deserve forgiveness. Your sin, my sin, our sin, all of sin, it's no small thing. Sin is rebellion against the holy and righteous creator and sustainer of the universe. Against the one who commands us to be holy as he is holy. Countless times and in countless ways, we have spurned God in order to pursue sin, straying farther and farther away from the will of God that is expressed in Scripture. And yet, Paul tells us in Romans that the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace. How? As a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. I love that Paul goes on to say and acknowledge that this was to show God's righteousness because there is this wrestling with the fact that in God's divine forbearance, he had passed over sin. See, we like to think of God in the Old Testament as holy and righteous and judgmental and punishing sin, and certainly there are episodes where his judgment is shown and exhibited. But the wrestle is that God is completely holy and completely righteous, and there are sins that he has clearly passed over and not punished. And Paul tells us this was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that in Jesus, God the Father might be just in punishing sin, and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Sinner, embrace this news and embrace this Jesus. How is it that God can forgive sins? How is it that Jesus can speak so plainly that all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter? Because God has put forth his son Jesus as a substitute by his blood. Believe in him 
who loved his own even unto death. By him be justified and forgiven forever. Now, even more, when you embrace Jesus by faith, you receive him not merely as a savior by whom you are forgiven, but, he says, in response to his family's accusations or concerns, we would receive him as brother. Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother, Jesus says. What is this will of God other than walking in repentance and in faith? Brother or sister, if you have placed your faith in Jesus, he is your brother. Which means God is your father. Which means that God, as judge, forgives you of your sins, but even more, God, as father, adopts you as his own. In Christ, you can be forgiven and you can become family. What better news could there be? Here's how J.I. Packer puts it in his classic, Knowing God. Adoption, so this is the family element, adoption into God's family is the highest privilege that the gospel offers. Higher even than justification, he says. This is the forgiveness piece. Let me say that again. Adoption is the highest privilege that the gospel offers. Higher even than justification. That's provocative. He goes on, some textbooks on Christian doctrine treat adoption as a mere subsection of justification. Our belonging to God's family is a subsection of forgiveness. But, he says, this is inadequate. In justification, God declares of penitent believers that they are not and never will be liable to the death that their sins deserve because Jesus Christ, their substitute and sacrifice, tasted death in their place on the cross. This, Packer says, is wonderful enough, but yet, in adoption, God takes us into his family and fellowship. He establishes us as his children and heirs. Closeness, affection, and generosity are at the heart of this relationship. To be right with God the judge is a great thing, but to be loved and cared for by God the Father is even greater. May you and I know this day God's forgiveness and his fatherhood through the redemption accomplished by his son and revealed to us by the power of his spirit. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your son, Jesus. And thank you for the Holy Spirit by whom we receive him and have our eyes opened to the good news of the gospel. Lord, I pray that as we gather here that if any of us are grappling with or struggling with the severity of our sin, that you would use that in our consciences by the power of your Spirit to compel us to repentance. Lord, would we freely receive the gift of your forgiveness as we turn from sin and turn to Christ? Lord, would we know the sweetness of walking in freedom from sin and also walking as children of God? Lord, would you be near to us? Would you comfort us? Would you impress upon us the fatherly love that you have for your children? Would we rest in that care? Would we know your goodness 
And we would trust in your grace revealed to us in Jesus Christ, our Savior and our brother. It's in his name we pray. Amen.